Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 95, The Biggest Scam in History, part G. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And I take offense to using that French word. I am actually French. Okay, you do it. Part G. Montgomery. Oh. It sounds so much better when a French person I know, says right? It. I'm actually part French, too, but I don't brag about it, so I must not be that French. He's giving me I was a- about to say something really <laughs> dirty about you having a little French in you, but... Uh, Never mind. Uh, That's the beer talking. We are at Onion Mountain in Virginia, the site of one of Sherlock's many death-defying acts last year. Um, yeah, last summer I was uh, crawling out on this uh, big boulder uh, right next to the overlook here, and I didn't realize Sherlock had followed me, so I came right to the edge, and it's like a sort of a gradual slope that you don't realize how close you are to the edge until you look around and realize how hard it is to scramble back up. So, yeah, there's Sherlock with, like, wobbly, trembly legs, like, oh, my God. He knew he was in trouble. Like, anytime he tried to move, his, his paws would start to slide further down the rock to this big drop. Mm-hmm. So I had to tell him to stay. And then I went and got his leash and managed to kind of finagle between two rocks and sort of get low enough to get that leash hooked around his neck. And stay, stay. And then when it's time, like, all right, come on. And I yanked him. <laughs> And so he, uh, that was one of his many death-defying uh, feats of survival. And in case you think we're really kinky, Sherlock is our dog, um, if you haven't listened to other episodes of us. So, <laughs> yeah. At one point, he was your nephew. You've worn that leash before, Teresa. Oh, I have not. Um, so this is about the book, Government, The Biggest Scam in History, and this is the second part, as we've mentioned now several times, because we had a lot to talk about. And Gumby kind of had his organization from the first episode, so we're going to go back to where we left off here. I believe it was right around where we were talking about the free state and pre-state projects that the the author of this book, Etienne de la Boissy Squared, um, is a part of. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read it in his own words from his book, uh, Government, the Biggest Scam in History Exposed. Um, and so this is from page 114 of his book describing the, uh, the Free State Project. Background. 
The Free State Project is an effort by voluntarist and libertarian-leaning freedom activists to move to a single state, New Hampshire, with a history of liberty and a population low enough where a migration or concentration of freedom activists could affect real change. The Free State Project is our effort to accelerate the objectives of the Free State Project by widely exposing organized crimes control system and offering the voluntarist alternative of real freedom, nonviolence, tolerance, and peace. The goal is to introduce 25,000 of the libertarian-leaning among existing New Hampshire residents to voluntarism, real freedom and activism through effective distribution of physical books, liberator flash drives, and DVD documentaries in a campaign that would promote town hall meetings where we would introduce the liberty-oriented social and political networks in the state. So I'm pretty proud that uh, I was born in New Hampshire, Laconia, New Hampshire. So I think it's awesome that like they're picking New Hampshire as like the state to try to make this kind of stand in to kind of uh, I guess it's appropriate to say they're trying to secede from the union, right? Yes. Yeah, I would say that he goes on to say, why is New Hampshire the Achilles heel of statism? And we're going to talk a little bit more about statism as a sort of a religious indoctrination of uh you know, having faith that we need the state, that the the state is legitimate, um, and that the state is good for us. In addition to having a history of individual liberty and a relatively small proportion of people that work for either the state or federal government, New Hampshire has the densest concentration of libertarians in the country. The Free State Project has been on the ground since 2003. Its members host 550 meetups a year in every corner of the state and has almost 5,000 activists on the ground with an additional 20,000 plus that have pledged to move, including 13,000 plus that pledged last year. 343 moved in 2018 and more arrive every week. In addition to the Free State Project, there are a myriad of liberty-oriented organizations working on everything from secession to police accountability to putting liberty-oriented mini-libraries in laundromats. (laughs) In short, New Hampshire has the social and political networks to absorb, educate, and organize new libertarians in provenly effective ways. It's the perfect place to achieve the 100th monkey effect, where a majority of the population adopts new knowledge somewhat simultaneously. Goal, peaceful and orderly secession from the U.S. and or widespread Gandhi-slash-Martin Luther King-esque civil disobedience that can't be ignored by the rest of the country. We can win freedom everywhere, but first we have to win somewhere, and we believe that somewhere is New Hampshire. We believe that, once successful, New Hampshire can serve as a template, laboratory, and proof of concept for prosperous and harmonious voluntarist societies. My favorite sentence in what I just read was that we believe we can win everywhere, but first we have to win somewhere. That's one of the most practical um, approaches I've come across as far as, you know, anti-civ, anarchist um, philosophies and approaches. And I love how this thing apparently is uh, doing something, you know, doing something really practical. It's one thing to kind of have a protest group where you're trying to protect a piece of land. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing, 
but it's so small. And doesn't it seem like every piece of land that the protesters try to protect, it just kind of prolongs it. So to actually try to move people into a state to start affecting elections, to start affecting just general popular opinion, um, wow. That, that seems like it's got a lot of promise to me. Yeah, and if I had known about the Free State Project when we were hitchhiking, when was that? In 2019? Um, we were up in New Hampshire, and I think, did you reach out to those folks that picked us up in New Hampshire? Well, one of the couples? I did. We had a really nice couple uh, pick us up in New Hampshire and actually go way out of their way to take us to the coast where we were headed. And so I reached out to them to ask them if they knew anything about this and what they thought of it. But we uh, are not around Wi-Fi very often, and so they didn't respond in time, and they might have responded by now, but we can't get it. Yeah, maybe we'll read it in the future as a listener write-in. But, I, yeah, I would like to know if there's anybody out there that happens to be listening uh, in New Hampshire or the general area, or they've heard of the Free State Project, and you live somewhere else, you know, what you think about it, and, uh, you know, if you've have good or bad, you know, whatever, criticisms, I'd love to hear about it. And a couple of things I want to throw in real quick is the pre-state project is kind of directed towards people already living there, but it's the same uh, project, basically. And um, they were also considering Wyoming and Idaho and I think Arizona Mm -hmm. in their list of possible states, um, but just thought New Hampshire had just a little bit more going for it. And I think that's awesome because New Hampshire, when you see the license plate, it says live free or die. Um, (laughs) They're people that really take their freedom seriously. And we've listened to a lot of Etienne de la Bautier Squared's interviews. And he goes on in his interviews to say, you know, that there's so many people already there um, that New Hampshire has a, a pretty small population, which makes it easy to canvas to reach people. There's no income or sales tax. And there's few folks that are on the government dole. So there's already kind of a feeling of freedom and independence there. Um, And, you know, one of the things that struck us when we uh, took our road trip through there, when we drove through there, was the the lack of seatbelt or helmet laws. You know, that was pretty cool to drive through New Hampshire and realize, like, you don't have to wear a seatbelt. It's up to you. You know, it's like your responsibility. Do you feel safer with a seatbelt? Wear the damn thing. Nobody's telling you what to do like you're a, you know, a 40-year-old toddler. So I really appreciated that about New Hampshire. Yeah, and we were just in a town in Virginia called Lexington, Virginia. And aside from a lot of history uh, that has to, that revolves around kind of like the Confederate side in the Civil War, Um, I believe it's the birthplace or at least the resting place of Stonewall Jackson as well as Robert E. Lee. Um, That town had a lot of this same sentiment of like, you know what? We're not going to tell you no swimming in the river. We are going to tell you if you're going to swim in the river, here are some things to know about. And we're not going to tell you to stay off of this soccer field in the park, but we are going to tell you the ways in which you cannot destroy it by giving you um, kind of ways to show, like if you step on it and you like leave a, a foot imprint in the mud, it's probably too wet to be on the soccer field. So I really, really appreciated the sentiment of this whole town, Lexington, Virginia, of it just felt like this is where you can live if you're an adult. If, yeah. if you can, like, take responsibility for yourself and not just have sign, sign everywhere, a sign telling you don't do this, don't do that, there's police everywhere. It just felt like, you know, if you can understand the reason why you don't mess things up, uh, then you can do whatever you want. 
And if I didn't make it clear, this part of this New Hampshire Free State Project is uh, getting people to sign a commitment that uh, they will move to New Hampshire in five years. So basically, they're flooding New Hampshire with people that want this, the secession, this freedom, this uh, voluntarist anarchist movement, um, which just kind of blows my mind. And in lieu with what Teresa's saying about Lexington, Virginia, that's such an interesting place. It's one of those places that, like, seems to have a really kind of unique energy. Like, there's so many military events that have brushed through there, or people. Um, they've got this walk, you know, in downtown of, like, all these little um, things, like, etched into the sidewalk of people that have been there, battles that have been fought. Man, it's really mind-blowing to realize how much Lexington, Virginia has played a part in military U.S. history. And, um, yeah, I'm definitely kind of feeling like Alice through the looking glass lately. There's so many things that I thought I believed, that I thought I had a handle on, that I'm having to reconsider because I'm seeing more freedom in some ways in right-wing-leaning places. I always thought the military was, you know, the military, the police... Period. They're the oppressors. And then you got this whole Trump phenomenon where apparently there was this insurrection, which I don't believe it was an insurrection. But I'm hearing more and more about the military actually being the people that are standing up for freedom against the government. And I'm like, what? You know, like, well, who am I supposed to side with? And more and more of these so-called anarchist protesters who I thought I was in league with. They're the ones kind of calling for, like, socialism. And what socialism? I mean, I don't want to get into a whole thing like I'm going to oversimplify it here. But basically, it's a request for the government to step more in to make things equal. And God damn it, I just spilled my beer on my lap. <laughs> oh, it's going everywhere. That's awesome. Oh, you're so... <laughs> you're going to have to take over. I got job. I got work to do. Yeah, these... He's literally sucking the beer off of this dirty table. But you know Waste what? Waste not, want not. There's no sign that says don't do that. I, you know, this is something new for the podcast. I don't I don't ever think there's been slurping noises. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess with what Gumby's saying, I was also surprised um, with Lexington. There was uh, at least one military institute, like a, a college that was right there in the town, in the heart of town. And you would think, like, with all of this military, you know, indoctrination and discipline, um, <laughs> discipline, that it would feel so oppressive, and yet it just didn't. And that blew my mind. I don't know if it's always been like that. I don't know if I'm just waking up to that, but... It was like through self-discipline, which I guess this is also like a from another perspective, the Buddhist concept, like through self-discipline, you can become free. Yeah, and I'm starting to realize there's something to the military. I feel like it's a power that's being channeled for all the wrong reasons, which is why I oppose the military. But the discipline, there's something to that, the warrior class. There's something that I see there, like... Teresa described it when we went there, like there's a feeling in the air of like you want to do your best. You want to be your best. You want to strive. And I got what she was talking about. There was just this feeling like, I don't know, like people were taking care of this town, you know, where you might have done this thing that, I don't know, it didn't seem like a big deal, but it was a little sloppy in another town. You kind of felt 
this thing in the air that made you not want to do it there because it's so, I don't know, and people were, were friendlier in a lot of places, and yet it wasn't just like a, I don't know, man, you got to go to Lexington, Virginia. It was a really a cool place to check out. And uh, so moving on, did you have anything else to say about the Free State or Pre-State project? I might come back to it, but not at the moment. All right. So um, this is kind of an example of people waking up or the need for people to start waking up in a way. I feel like a lot of the reason and, you know, I might not have the same views as Etienne, but um, I would say that probably part of the reason why the government has gotten so much control and power is because people have been okay with shutting off their brains, including myself. Um, I wonder how much we're okay with it and how much they're kind of doing it for us. Well, that's, that is true. I mean, I'm thinking about all these video games and the channels and the things Etienne talks about and that we've, we were aware of before Etienne, you know, through our own studies of just the propaganda that like, uh, Gives us rewards for shutting off our brain and makes it so easy. Yeah, like this morning, I was realizing more and more um, how programmed I am as far as I'm really bristling with this um, idea of voluntarism and anarcho-capitalism. And it I don't feel like I want the government, but I also am feeling really uncertain about something else. And as Gumby was trying to point out to me, you know, um, could it get any worse? And Mm -hmm. I have, I have a number of things to say about that, but I, I mean, um, in the notes that we were talking about, like people starting to wake up. So I didn't want to like deviate too much. Yeah. Well, I'd say just like, let's, uh, talk about what we're talking about. And one of the things that occurs to me that's not on my list, um, is one of the big wake-up things as we're talking about this. You know, we're kind of debating and talking about all these concepts, many of which are not only new to us, but fly directly in the face, like anarcho-capitalism? What? Like, I'm trying really hard to be the devil's advocate with this because we don't have Etienne de la Potier Square right here to defend himself. And to tell you the truth, in some of the interviews, I haven't been too thrilled with some of his responses. So I'm trying to get underneath like what would get a person to think like this and i'm sure we're going to talk more about some of our skepticism skepticism yeah skepticism that's the beer talking that is not (laughs) so but one of the things that was really a wake-up call was we were talking about if there's a free market no government who regulates the corporations and Basically, what I realized we were saying is, who's going to protect the environment if the government isn't protecting the environment? (laughs) Right. And to me, more than anything else, that jumped out in my mind of like, oh my God, the brainwashing is in us too. The government is protecting the environment? Who has done more damage to the environment than the government? The government poses itself as the defender of the environment. Regulations. But really, these regulations add up to permits, permission for corporations to rape the earth. So, you know, it's things like that that you start realizing. You think you've taken the red pill and woken up, but maybe you've only just started. Because if you think the government, you know, when you start, well, what happens when the government goes away? You know, 
it's funny to see these little parts of yourself that jump up and like start thinking like, oh, but what about regulation? What happens as if regulation worked? It's a really weird thing. <laughs> Your notes just flew away. Yeah, I'll get it. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I thought that was really fertile ground to uh, to be discussing our own blind spots to um, in regard to the government and, and to this book. And you were talking about people starting to wake up. One of the things I found interesting that Etienne brought up in interviews is, uh, you know, he talks about the pandemic, And he believes that the pandemic and all the censorship that we're hearing about, you know, everybody, we listen to all these podcasts and everybody's complaining about censorship, increased censorship. He believes that this is a sign that we are starting to win, that people were starting to wake up. Even the cops are starting to wake up like, what the fuck are we doing? This isn't working. That as a culture, we were starting to wake up. And so they had to pull out like plan however down the line, plan F, like, oh, fuck me, plan F. So they pull out this plan and it's like an act of desperation. As he says... You know, the iron fist in the velvet glove. That's this extreme, rigid, authoritarian control, but wrapped in the velvet glove. So it feels very soft. It actually feels like you have freedom, like you have a say, like your vote counts, like you've got everything you want. So when they have to pull the velvet glove off and expose the iron fist for what it is, censorship, control, house arrest, lockdowns, stuff like that. Etienne says that's an act of desperation, and I found that a very interesting thing to ponder. That what if people are starting to wake up, and there was more going on? Like, for instance, the Free State Project. I never heard of that. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So the fact that the media is not covering it, and that that's starting to happen, maybe there's all kinds of shit busting out all over the place that are posing a real challenge to the government, to the intergenerational organized crime. And so they're having to use their most desperate measures now to gain to keep control. Yeah, I I am withholding judgment on that until I hear something from someone else about it. Because you know, just hearing it from the source of the person that's telling you that it's You're a big deal. You're withholding judgment on what? Like on the Free State Project. Like, oh yeah. I don't know if the media isn't covering it or if there's just nothing to cover. Like, I have no idea. I don't know what to think anymore because everything just seems so easily fabricated. Like mm-hmm. the pandemic, like he said, um, that there are. He's not uh, arguing that there is some sort of sickness happening. He's not arguing that people are getting sick. What he's arguing is that it is a full-on worldwide problem that that calls for this much of a heavy iron. What do you call it? An iron hand. Iron fist iron in fist. a velvet glove. Yeah. And he, yeah, he he did this. I'm not sure what it's called, but it was basically like go to your local hospital and videotape it. And he did that. He was in uh, I forget. Do you remember where in California? Like Santa. Clara, California or something? He said it was supposed to be the hub of where the, the, you know, the cases were happening, like really where the pandemic was ramped up. In California. In California. And he went there with a video camera and started interviewing people and like all the emergency rooms are empty. 
And he's talking to people, and some of the people that work there, some of the orderlies, some of the uh, paramedics are saying, yeah, I don't know if this is a hoax or what the hell's going on. And then, so he's telling other people, go to your local hospital, videotape what you see. I can tell you, Teresa went to the emergency room. When was that? How long ago? Um, I don't know. At least a month ago. I mean, it wasn't within the... the I, who knows what this thing is doing anymore? Do you hear numbers on it anymore? I don't even know if people are getting sick anymore from no, this No, I'm thing. just trying to stick to the facts of what we yeah. saw. So if you went to the emergency room a month ago, and we are still in the pandemic, am I correct about that? I guess so. I've never seen the emergency room so empty. <laughs> and you've been to the emergency room more than I have. I have been to the emergency room many times for so... I mean, I have beat the shit out of myself in so many ways. I've been sitting in that emergency room so often, I've never seen it so empty. So there is something weird about that. Now, he thinks it's a complete hoax. I don't know. I've, I've, it is weird to me that both Teresa and I are sitting here. We know people. We have family. We don't know anybody personally who's getting hit in a way that's not um, beyond your average flu virus mm-hmm. with this pandemic. We hear stories, but I hear so much that's sort of like a friend of a friend kind of thing. And the further out it goes from my direct experience, the more I start wondering how much perception, how much propaganda, how much, I mean, I know even hearing myself talk, you know, how much I twist tall tales. I just don't know what to think. But I like that he's raising the question because before I ran into this, I already knew something weird was going on. And all he's saying is, you know, we just listened to our latest interview with him last, well, not our interview, but an interview with him last night. Um, that he's saying there very well may be a flu virus going on, but the reaction to it doesn't make sense. There's nothing to justify a full-on lockdown pandemic. And I've been saying that since the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, the host of that podcast um, was even saying, I think it was the host, he was saying, since when does the government give a shit about our health? I mean, from all of the various... um, foods that are approved by the FDA, all the chemicals that are approved, and as well as all the vaccinations, if you, you know, if you think that, that are um, mandatory and who knows what they're doing to our, to our bodies and, and to the children. Do you remember the name of that podcast? I don't. I remember the guy's name was Cosmo, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, Cosmo. And it was interesting because he said right at the beginning, I don't agree with everything this guy says, uh, especially regarding voting and the pandemic. Um, but yeah, that he brought up, you know, even though he has different views on the pandemic and the virus and whether we should wear masks and everything, he did bring up, like, it it hasn't made sense to me from the beginning that the government would suddenly have such a forceful reaction to protect our health. This is not the government that we've come to know. Yeah. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about that? As far I mean, as... you might as well not even ask me. I'll come back to it if I remember it, but okay. at the moment, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, my brain jumps around. I'm going to move on then. So, you move on. Um, many, many podcasts, this guy has been on, this Etienne guy, and so many times he has said that we are self-organizing as a society, as a, I guess, as a species. I mean, everything he's saying is that we don't need government to interfere because that's what they do um, for them, like for themselves. They interfere, they tax us, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the questions that's often brought up, almost like 
a script in so many of these podcasts is like, well, if, if we don't have government, who will maintain the roads? And I've had a few instances where I've seen kind of situations where the roads are not being maintained by the government. And I can't really say that they're great. Um, one of them happened here in, uh, in North Carolina to some, uh, to someone's daughter who is living on this private road, the road washed out and they had to raise funds to rebuild the road. I mean, it was a washed out road. It wasn't just like a chunk of it. It was like, there was road on one side of the water, water, no bridge. And then there was, you know, some crumbly road on the other side. So that is, um, you know, something that people would have to come together as some already know, if you live maybe down a a gravel or dirt road that you have to maintain the road. Maybe you have a a fund that every year you put money towards it so that you can um, make improvements on the road. And Teresa and I have like debated this a little bit, you know, me trying to play devil's advocate of why that might be. I would suspect in a community, if you need a road, that there will be sometimes people who know how to do the work themselves. And um, if they don't, they know how to come together and find, like to um, find the people that can and fund that. But I wonder how infantilized we've been by the government to just expect the government to take care of it, which is why you saw what you saw. Mm-hmm. And another argument that Etienne um, brings up about roads is that businesses, if they want to have a business, they will build a road. But that's only to benefit the business. It's not like they're going to necessarily continue that road to your house or to your neighborhood um, or you know, make improvements on that road. So um, where my mom lives at in Utah, there is a builder who um, purchased land and he was, you know, trying to build a road and came up against a lot of really big rocks that he had to then dynamite within the subdivision. Like there are people already living there and these huge chunks of rock had to be exploded out. Um, and some of them, well, so many of these giant boulders, I mean, probably 10 feet by 10 feet. Um, tall and wide are just sitting in my mom's backyard, just like there. (laughs) She didn't want them there, but the builder um, went bankrupt trying to build this road. And I guess now is, you know, trying to sell off the property so that he can make some of the money back uh, and let it be somebody else's problem. But until then, all these boulders are sitting behind my mom's house, behind so many of her neighbor's houses. And that road isn't really going to be finished. It's just a, a small stretch of road that, you know, the builder miscalculated um, what was underneath the surface. And now it's just kind of like, well, shit, um, there's not going to be a road there. So that's another story. And the third story comes from Nepal because I've been to Nepal. Have you been to Nepal? I have. And um, real quick, this wasn't actually a road necessarily. There were two stories. One was a mudslide. Um And just people showed up and started, you know, just kind of clearing it. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the government because they acted really fast. Um, (laughs) And the The ways to tell it's not the government. It acted acted fast. And the other story from Nepal was there was a water main break. And um, people once again activated themselves in the neighborhood. They they recognized, like, this is going to be a problem for us. The government 
if they even hear us, it's it's going to be weeks, months, years if they do anything. So we need to fix this now. And again, um, mobilized a group of uh, some guys that maybe had some experience or they didn't, but they were just trying to fix a problem. So that's what that looks like as far as I, my personal experience of, you know, dealing with the problems and not just having the government there and being kind of a, an infant, like you said, infantilized. Yeah. When I've been in, uh, debates with people about like not voting, being an anarchist, uh, it's commonly brought up like, well, you drive on the roads, don't you? And so, you know, this kind of road question is just like a, a symbol of like a larger question of, uh, you know, could we have roads without the government? And I think the answer is yes. I agree with Etienne about that. And one of the things he talks about that we tried to dissect a little bit with our discussions between each other is the self-organizing principle. You know, you get rid of the government. He says we don't need the government. The government is actually interjecting a, a system that is not self-organizing, that requires an extreme amount of stolen money, of armed coercion, of force, of constant war, that if you get rid of that stuff, that things kind of tend to settle out and self-organize. And we see that in nature. And that's an interesting concept. And uh, I don't know. <clears throat> Can't say we reached any kind of uh, agreement on what that, the truth of that or what that would look like. But I do agree that the, you know, getting the government out of the picture would be a huge step into moving towards self-organizing, which I think looks kind of like, you know, tribalism. I was reading this Wikipedia article because they're easily downloadable and we don't have the Internet. And um, there's a very interesting article on anarcho-capitalism. And remember, you know, who the hell knows who wrote this, who updated it. So it's, you know, more propaganda. But I, I, I selected, so this is my own propaganda, some things from that article just to, um, to bring up. And I, I suppose I'll bring some of them up now. Well, Etienne, is, he, he calls himself a voluntarist. Um, but my understanding is it's pretty much that he's an anarcho-capitalist. Um, and anarcho-capitalists, uh, they wish to end the public state. So this is from this article. Um, replacing it with countless private states. Therefore, those with more capital will have a greater coercive force. So it'll be just like now. So it's not the anarcho-capitalists want to abolish the state, but to his own satisfaction, not because they denounce what the state is doing. They just object to who's doing it. So that was something that was really bothering me. And when I read that quote from the article, I was thinking, yeah, there's something about this, this self-organizing thing. Like there's obviously going to be richer people and poorer people. Anarcho-capitalists are not anarchists. They do not believe in um, what is the word? Egalitarianism. They don't believe that like you have to have everybody be equal. They don't believe that. That's the capitalist perspective of like, hey, you work for it. Good on you. Now you've got it. So with that in mind, there's going to already be people that have more money that can influence anything, everything. In fact, another quote uh, from that same article, the anarcho-capitalist article, um, says that justice 
would favor who pays the most money for it. I don't know how not taking money out of the equation would result in a situation that wouldn't eventually go back to having like monopolies. Um, Another quote, it said, uh, anarcho-capitalism would inevitably transform into a monopolistic private defense and judicial agency because if you have people paying money for these things, it's all everything would be privatized in an anarcho-capitalist society. Eventually, there's going to be businesses, corporations that are going to be bigger than others, and they're going to eat up the small companies just like they do now. And, you know, we talked about regulation with the government. Um, I guess I just don't know. I, I Again, this is my blind spot. I'm not saying that what we have now is good. It, it isn't. But I just am really hesitant to think that this idea of self-organizing would result in something that I would be able to exist in. Yeah, I'm trying really hard to be the devil's advocate on this because uh, Teresa's like trying really hard to uh, critique this. And I think we could exist in this as easily as we exist in what currently is. I feel like kind of the, all the things I find that are weaknesses in this, uh, for instance, you'll probably talk more about how uh, Etienne de la Bautier Square is really into technology. Mm-hmm. I think technology is based in really bad shit. <laughs> I can't imagine a picture of a world that I want to live in where technology stays intact. Uh, capitalism. I'm troubled by some of the things about capitalism. I'm trying to be the devil's advocate here. You know, like, you work hard, you get more. Um He talks about charity, you know, that you can give to charities. Um, And so I imagine that could form something like a tribal cultural imperative to be generous. But looking at this guy's life, he's a rich motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. So it kind of seems to me like he wants to keep the opportunity to be a rich motherfucker. And (laughs) I don't see that as really... I would support this as being the next step, like get government out of the picture, but I don't see it as an end product of kind of the way I want to live. To me, tribalism, one of the things that's encouraged is we live in small communities in a tribe. And so you don't get to be a rich motherfucker because what that means is you're a greedy motherfucker. (laughs) You can give donations all you want, but if you're still having way more than your neighbors, what kind of asshole are you? You show your neighbors what a great person you are, how useful you are to your tribe by your extreme generosity. With greater means comes greater responsibility. If you're the best hunter in the tribe, you have more responsibility that comes with it. And there's satisfaction in that because you get to take care of your tribe more. But there's no real ego, rich guy kind of thing. So, yeah, that's kind of where I fall on that. I I, I share your... uh, skepticism of some of the things but i feel like between Teresa and i i'm a little more uh willing to consider that maybe this could be the next step because when i tell people you know give up industrial society 
even the anarcho-primitivists aren't giving up their technology. <laughs> so if they're not giving it up, how the fuck are you going to get everybody else to? And when I pin anarcho-primitivists down on this shit, they say, oh, well, it's all going to happen by itself. They're letting themselves off the hook, in other words. Mm-hmm. Nothing's required of them. They can just keep eating Cheetos and watching TV and fucking sitting on their fat asses and, like, making posts on Facebook. Nothing's required of them. <laughs> so when I'm looking at people that are actually trying to do something... That's one of the things I applaud Etienne for, is he's doing something. And what if his next step, even though I don't think it's a solution in itself, is something people can wrap their minds around? So that's my hope. Something else that came up, um, I believe it was in the anarcho-capitalism Wikipedia article, was talking about the the idea, the um, existence of public spaces, whether they're parks, rivers, um, this, you know, Blue Ridge Parkway. And Etienne himself has, has said on podcasts, you know, like if people, um, if roads are privatized, you know, we had turnpikes before and we still do, you know, like you pay to use it. And you, if you don't use it, then you don't have to pay for it. And that has a certain um, sense to it. But, you know, our way of life, uh, Gumby and I, you know, we definitely take advantage of these public open spaces. And there very well could be maybe a charity where people like the Triangle Land Conservancy in North Carolina, they uh, like they raise funds to purchase a plot of land that's like in a watershed area and then they make improvements on it, you know, like they build trails and um, and have a parking lot where people can go and enjoy it. And we do enjoy it. We don't necessarily like donate to them. Um, but I just wonder like in this very privatized world, what would happen to things like rivers? Because it even said like um, fishing rights. If somebody has the rights to a, uh, a lane, like a, what do they call it? A shipping lane. They might not allow for, and I mean, a shipping lane seems like it would be probably big and deep and people wouldn't necessarily want to go fishing off the banks there. But like in certain instances, there are, there are activities now that are, um, it's kind of like in that sweet spot where, Nobody's really regulating them. I mean, maybe the fishing games, people come around if you're in a boat or whatever. But if you're just, like, fishing off the bank, you don't normally see people, like, checking for permits and stuff. But if it's a private area, just like now, you you kind of don't go to those places if it says private property, no trespassing. So I'm just wondering what it would look like for our life, you know, if there weren't parks. It was like, oh, you want to come to this park? It'll be $5. You want to use this river? It'll be $5. Well, here's a question I have, is how much we'd want to live this life if the culture changed significantly. Like, isn't (laughs) our life partly a reaction to not wanting to participate in things that we think are insane? But what if it got a little saner? Haven't we all, like, both of us kind of acknowledged, especially between each other, like, one of the weaknesses in this is not being tied to land? that we feel a lack of, like, not feeling a connection to land? Might we not want to settle down more if the culture wasn't trying to, like... For instance, settling down in the culture as it is means paying taxes, means supporting shit that we find deplorable, means playing a game that we feel like 
we don't want to be one more member of something that legitimizes this game. So if the game changed, I wonder if we're asking the wrong question. Like, instead of trying to find a way that maybe we can fit in, like, live the way we are living now in this other culture, maybe we wouldn't want to. Yeah, I might have to join a commune or something because I... While I don't agree with what tax money is going towards, I haven't paid taxes in a couple years, so um, I'm enjoying you know, many of the things that are already established without having to pay for them. And second, I don't know how much I would want to uh, work for someone else to get rich, you know? Like, I I have another quote. Well, what if you're working for yourself? I mean, you're kind of still talking about what sounds to me like the current system. What if it's not so much like working for somebody else to get rich, but like you actually can get as wealthy as you want with your work? whatever, however you measure wealth, and get to have land that feels like yours, yours to protect, yours to have a relationship with. Yeah, well, that would still, I mean, it would still require money to purchase the land and to purchase anything that I would need to, even if I just wanted to grow my own food and and be self-sufficient, so to speak, which I doubt I'd be able to do, um, you know, getting chickens and goats and stuff like that. I mean, that all is going to cost money. So I'd have to work for someone else. And that might be just a short-term thing, but that was another thing that came up with um, with the idea of voluntarism, which is what Etienne calls himself. Um, I call it anarcho-capitalism. There was a quote that said, anarcho-capitalists would say, if I want to hire someone to pick my tomatoes, how are you going to stop me without using coercion? Because they're very much, um, the voluntarists, like they don't want to have aggression unless they're protecting their own property. But this article points out that you will never see anyone that's an anarcho-capitalist say, if I want to hire myself out to pick someone else's tomatoes, how are you going to stop me? And it brings up the question uh, for the voluntarists, are food and shelter voluntary or involuntary? Because if you have to work for your food and your shelter, your land and the food that you eat, how voluntary is that? Yeah, that's one of the weaknesses I see in anarcho-capitalism, too, is uh, it seems like all the things that kind of, you know, you really see in the late 1800s when you study Rockefeller and Rockefeller and uh, <laughs> Carnegie and all these bastards that were really the first, like, mega-capitalists. Um, Henry Ford. Henry Ford, Jesus Christ, yeah. And we actually heard uh, um, Etienne, like, kind of uh, give props to Henry Ford, <laughs> yeah. you know, in one of the uh, the recent interviews. And I know Henry Ford, like, his workers were not fucking happy. Henry Ford was like, instead of paying his workers more so they could have, like, a good life, he was hiring guards to gun down the workers because they wouldn't uh, cooperate with what he thought was um, appropriate, which is him being fucking really wealthy and them struggling and scraping to get by. Um, yeah, when I, I digest all this, at least now, and like I said, I might change my opinions and I think that's appropriate. If you're stuck on your opinion so much that you don't think there's a possibility, you might change your opinion next week. I feel like you're kind of moving into just, uh, another form of propaganda. But right now I'm still an anarcho-primitivist. I feel like tribe is the only thing that works and tribe would not allow a Henry Ford. Yeah. The, the guy that kind of 
originated the term voluntarism. The idea of voluntarism actually goes back to the 17th century. I won't bore you, but you can look up the word voluntarism. But this guy who kind of coined the term voluntarism um, around the 1840s, I think his name is pronounced Oberon Herbert, and he was the third Earl of Carnahan or something, and he was born in Highclere Castle in England. So, hmm, in the words that... Uh, Wait a it, well, yeah. that's the guy that coined the term voluntarism? Yeah. He was a royal person? Yeah. Well, what the fuck was his agenda in, like... I think he was just kind of a philosopher and kind of, like, wanting to like, think about different ways that the world could work, but he also married this woman that who was, like, super rich, so I don't think he was ever, like, a man of the people. Um, I think some people tried to call him an anarchist, but he wouldn't have it. Uh, I forget why, but he wasn't, like, what you would think, like, a badass rebel. It sounds to me like he was a highfalutin, um, maybe... Just somebody that wanted to have a different perspective on things and, and, like, shake things up for the rich people to talk about it, like fancy parties or something. Yeah, I I was going to say in the words of Patrick Henry, I smell a rat. <laughs> well, if you're done, and feel free to come back to that if you're not, um, I was kind of wanting to move into the book, like the first part, the 20-plus techniques uh, that create mental-slash-tax slavery. Yeah. So... You know, going back to the book, which is kind of what we're using as sort of our linchpin for all these discussions and topics we're exploring, um, the beginning of the book is really interesting. Um, It has that title I just said, and it compares in more than 20 ways the tactics used by Nazi Germany, the current U.S. government, the Soviet Union slash Russia, and East Germany. And so the cool thing about that is you get to see with your own eyes like more than 20 techniques that are common almost across the board with these four different um, empires, you might say. You know, and then all the other ones we've been taught as Americans are deplorable. They're horrible. They're, they're, they're tyrannical. And so it's really an invitation to, like, see the playbook. This is how government works. This is how government functions. This is what government requires you to do and does to bring you into the fold of the organized crime. Um, and it's it's meant to utilize our wiring to see patterns. You know, I, I remember studying tracking. I was taught that humans are wired to see patterns. And, um, you know, this kind of using the same thing that like once you see patterns, our brains as humans are kind of wired to ingest that, to understand that, to comprehend that. So, Teresa and I both picked out two of our favorites of the the more than 20. And Teresa, do you want to start off with one of yours? Sure. Um, all right. So these are techniques that create mental slash tax slavery, as Gumby said. So one of them that stood out to me was pledges and oaths that are forced on children. And I started thinking about like Etienne makes a really big deal about like the flag as a holy symbol and um, how much we're indoctrinated to like to say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
Now, I remember saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I honestly don't know if children in the United States have to say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore, um, if it's an option, or if they just gave up, you know, just trying to enforce that. But I, I always did kind of feel weird. Like, I'm just, I'm just saying these words. It doesn't mean anything to me. And then thinking about how you know, maybe after years upon years of saying it, maybe I just lost track of the influence that it had. Like maybe I thought I was just saying the words, but maybe it's had a much bigger influence on me. Yeah. I remember saying the pledge of allegiance to the flag, uh, when I was really young, I don't remember saying it so much in middle school. I think it was kind of coming out of style when I was getting older, but I do remember being younger and like learning that. One of my favorite uh, techniques that's across the board used by all four of these, Nazi Germany, current U.S. government, Soviet Union, Russia, and East Germany, was the use of propaganda. Um, He points out here that the Nazi Party established a film division as early as 1930. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels appointed... Gables, 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 (laughs) appointed himself patron of the German film and promoted escapism, exercised censorship over news and funded films that showed the Nazi party in a positive light, distributed people's receivers radios limited in range to only receive Nazi, not foreign broadcasts, which were outlawed. So I found that really interesting. They gave them really weak radios so they could only hear the broadcast that the Nazi party was putting out. And I remember when we were studying our presidents, one of my presidents to study was uh, Hoover. Radio Free Europe. And this is when uh, radio started becoming really a big thing. And Hoover really stepped in to control that. He understood right away, like, wow, we need to get ahead of this thing because this is going to be piped into every home in America. Control the information. Control the people. Mm. And so uh, Etienne goes on to talk about, um, I'm not going to go through every country, but just uh, the current U.S. government. CIA and Department of Defense have direct involvement in more than 800 major movies and more than 1,000 television shows like Argo, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and others that shape a false paradigm. NPR and public television is also used to distract and deceive product placement of the American flag anchored to moments of high positive emotion is found in movies like The Martian or every Michael Bay movie. (laughs) And so he loves bringing up this example. I think he brought it up in every interview we listen to where, you know, there's some kind of like, especially The Martian, where there's high intensity, like, oh, my God, is the hero going to make it? Is he going to make it? Yes, he makes it. And they cut to a picture of the American flag. So I thought that was really interesting how each one of these governments uses propaganda to start talking to our subliminal minds, um, kind of a sub-basement of our conscious minds. And we used to listen to NPR regularly when the pandemic first started happening. I was like, well, that's the only station we can get that constantly talks about the news. (laughs) And And why did they just constantly talk about the news? Yeah, and it was like a few months in that I couldn't take it anymore. It was so obviously propaganda. It was like, wow, I'm learning enough about like what's happening out there that I can't ignore the fact that they are glossing over really important things, whole perspectives, whole points of view. And promoting, even the way they order their programs, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It was just straight up fucking propaganda. I can't stand NPR anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was at my mom's house watching the TV with her, it was really 
nauseating. Like I had to just bite my tongue most of the time because whether it was the news or a, a TV show or God help me, those late night shows. Nah. I don't know. They're awful. Um, I'll leave it at that. Should I go ahead and do my other one? Yeah, what's your other one? My other one. Your other one. My other one is a technique that creates mental and or tax slavery. Is the use of um, military and the police. Oh, they're artificially glorified and celebrated. When I worked for Circuit City, which is a a now defunct uh, electronics company, uh, it was during... September 11th, um, wow, I started to feel like very patriotic and they gave us these flag pins, the U S flag to put on our name badges. And I wore it. And like, um, I think everybody in the store wore it. We weren't forced to wear it, but it was like, yeah, we got to be like really patriotic now. Cause our, you know, our country has been attacked and Gumby will talk about, um, his next uh, technique that he picked out. But looking back on that, I don't really know why I felt that way, except it was kind of like just in the news, it was just like, wow, we're the victim, you know, the Americans were attacked and, you know, we need to band together. This is such a travesty, you know, all these people died and, you know, uh, I don't think I would have necessarily worn would have worn a pin with the U.S. flag um, had I not been given that pin at my jaw where, like, everybody else was wearing it. I don't know. It just felt like peer pressure. And I also, um, I like how Etienne pointed out, like, there are even spaces at grocery store parking lots for, like, veterans and the military. Now, I can understand if you, uh, have some, you know, maybe you were in the war and like your legs were blown off or something, you know, something where you need to be closer to the store. Those are called handicapped parking spaces. But then there's like just straight up military and there's, there's other like really nonsensical parking spaces right at the front. I don't mind walking. I'm just wondering like, why do the military get to have spaces up front? Like they should be the ones that like could walk the furthest. They're, they tend to be like very physically fit and like, you know, ready to walk long distances, at least they used to when they were actually, um, in combat. Yeah. The rewards for being an order follower. Yeah. It's just very strange. So yeah, that was my other one. And I remember feeling a little bit of that patriotism after 9-11, you know, it was kind of just so much in the air. Um, (laughs) I was an anarchist by then and even I felt a little bit of that. My last one was use of false flag events, manufactured intelligence, and lies to start wars. 9-11. A false flag is when a country, usually through its intelligence services, manufactures an apparently actual attack from another country or a terrorist event to unite the public behind the government, restrict (laughs) civil liberties, and benefit politically connected firms, military-industrial complex companies, and banking interests. And some of the false flags, and we'd already uh, found some of these on our own research before this, was, uh, you know, World War II, a big false flag that was a little bit questionable. You know, we get the history of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attacking us. But there's a lot of fishy things about that that don't quite add up, like how how come we were so unprepared when we were sitting right there um, in a place that we should have been prepared. Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin, 
the Gulf War, the first one, there was Kuwaiti, there was uh, what George Bush Sr. kept saying, which, which were babies tossed from incubators, which ended up being debunked. Um, I remember researching that, that the woman that was saying that ended up being like a daughter of a prime minister, of somebody like um, involved in this uh, propaganda. And the Drowning Street Memo, or the Downing Street Memo. And then the Global War on Terror, which has been kind of a uh, false flag that's kept us in constant warfare, benefiting the, the military um, war pigs ever since. You got 9-11. You got the, uh, I mean, the, the Libyan troops raping women on Viagra. The chemical weapons attack on Douma in Syria. Um, the IEDs in Iran, the embassy attack. You know, it just goes on and on. And I found that really interesting because we see that, like I said, in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Soviet Union. Uh, not this one. We There's not one for East Germany. <laughs> yeah, I like how sometimes he just kind of is like, no. Yeah. Maybe didn't find the information, couldn't back it up, or I don't know, just got tired one night. For the Soviet Union, there was the shelling of Manila. This was a false flag incident in which the Soviet Union shelled the Soviet town of Manila and blamed it on Finland as a casus belli to start the Winter War. So these countries all have been caught doing damage to them, themselves, their own uh, citizenry, to create enough momentum to be able to wage a war that the right people find extremely profitable. Yeah, and um, did you know before this book what false flag, if you'd heard that word or what it meant? You said there were some words that you knew. Yeah, I didn't Or know. didn't know. <laughs> yeah, false flag, you know, I just described that as sort of an event that's manufactured to get you to feel and to sport a certain thing. Um, God, what was that? Remember the hell with Maine? Remember the... Remember the main the hell with Spain? To hell with Spain. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Which war was that? The Spanish-American War? That sounds right. Yeah. And that was just a, you know, we might have blown up our own ship by just uh, negligence, but we blamed it on the people we wanted everybody to get behind for the enemy. And there was one for World War One. I'm not remembering at the moment. Uh, Lithuania? Does that sound familiar? The Lu Lusitania, maybe? Lusitania, yeah. Another ship bombing. But... There's manufactured intelligence, you know, the same kind of thing where they just come out with something and they kind of leave it like uh, Monica Perez in one of our uh, favorite um, podcasts, The Propaganda Report, talks about that she read somewhere that it's like bear food. If you just set out food for a bear, it's not going to be as interested as if you hide it and allow the bear to feel like it found it because that's what it's wired to do is find food. And so if you take intelligence and just hide it a little bit, but not too much, where people can feel like they uncovered it, suddenly that's a really good way to manipulate the public. That's something I've kind of gotten on the alert for. Um, memory holes, you know, things that just, oh my God, if you haven't found a memory hole yet on your own, you're not paying attention yet. Things that just we have collective amnesia about, like how the fuck did you forget this happened last year? For <laughs> instance, <last> week. <laughs> for instance, every president, every president goes back on what they say. Every rat bastard, goddamn one of them. And yet, every four years, we act like the new guy is just going to do exactly what he says. That's a memory hole. Selective amnesia. 
and it is sold to us. Isn't that a term that came from 1984 or something? Which? Memory hole. I don't recall. Like if something, it's a concept that was there. If something didn't jive with what the powers that be in that book, um, if it didn't jive with what they wanted to look like or, or happen, they would just like cut it out or, or somehow get it out of the like news or out of a newspaper. Well, the editing of history was definitely a theme in 1984, and you could say that was uh, using this this um, concept of memory hole. I'm using um, my body to shade the the iPad right well, now. Well, that's good. Yeah. And anchoring, you know, where we are meant to make the we're led to make connections to things that we might not not otherwise make. Like for instance, seeing the flag in moments of high heroism until for some reason every time we see that flag, we feel like a certain connection, like it's our flag. Like we need to treat it as a holy symbol, folded in a certain way, disposed of it a certain way. It's only out in certain kinds of weather, that kind of thing. And when you start looking for that, you'll see that a lot too, where one thing will follow another. The connections are being made for us that don't exactly exist in themselves. They're being forged for us. And controlled opposition. This is one that was really interesting. If you have a government that nobody is opposing and somebody stands up and opposes them and has a really good point in their actual opposition, this could be troublesome for the government. So what if the government got smart enough, and we know through our studies of CIA, PSYOPs, MKUltra, um, Edward Bernays, that the government's been studying this shit for a long time, especially after World War II, of let's play chess here. Let's get ahead of this game. What if we come up with our own opposition? So you don't need to stand up. As a matter of fact, we're going to hire this guy that says things that you aren't privy to. He's a better opposition than you could ever be. But we control him. So he conveniently skirts around issues that would really endanger us. He brings up stuff that, like, you know, if you're already attached to, like, opposing the government, you're going to be like, yeah, that's right. But it doesn't really help you. It's just the same shit you already knew. Maybe said more sophisticated than you could say it. But the stuff that would actually maybe wake people up, that would maybe actually outrage more people, somehow this controlled opposition never comes out with that stuff. Only just enough stuff that it doesn't really upset the government, but kind of co-ops, kind of absorbs some of the oppositional force. Controlled opposition is something I've uh, become more aware of and started looking for a lot more. So these terms I thought were really uh, interesting and helpful. And I see you wrote down a word here, culture. You know, we were talking about in the last episode how Etienne is like, you know, control the words, control the culture. Um, that's another word that he kind of uh, emphasizes, the culture, cult, sure. <laughs> you know, the cult within culture. Exactly. And uh, did you want to talk about the religion of statism? Well, you go for it. You got something to say on it? Um, well, you know, we listen to a lot of these podcasts that he's on and and have read the book and, and taken notes on it. And I guess for me, statism is basically just saying that instead of it being a governing body that like kind of stays out of your business otherwise it has become a cult religion um people they 
revere the government in a way. And I'm not, I'm not excluding myself because I don't know how far, like how indoctrinated I am. It, it concerned me this morning when Gumby and I were talking before the podcast that no matter what, like we have to have this government, like there is no other way. There is no other God, but God. And so that's what I got from, um, the religiosity of, of statism as he calls it. Yeah, and the very uh, techniques that are used to kind of uh, get people in a cult, um, to get people to follow a religion, are also used in our government. Um, We take kids to the Capitol with these oversized buildings that are designed to make you feel really small. We have religious symbols like the flag. Um, The Bellamy salute is another one he brings up. Maybe you haven't heard of the Bellamy salute, but you've heard of the Nazi salute. It's basically the same thing, and actually that came from America. That salute you see that if you do it now out in public, um, (laughs) people are going to call you a Nazi. They're going to be like, oh, my God, I can't. I mean, you can't do that in a photograph. You'll be uh, run out of town on a rail. That was an American salute. It started off with the hand being upraised, the palm being upraised to the flag. And apparently when you'd say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, you'd say like, I pledge allegiance to the flag. And then you'd raise up your hand. This is exactly how Etienne sounds when he does the podcast, too. Like, sort he of. literally just said it just like he said it. <laughs> yeah. And apparently this, uh, around the 1900s, they came out with this uh, Ben-Hur movie where the um, this Bellamy salute started showing, like, the palm down. It's just kind of a more casual version of this. This moved over to, I think, Italy. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Yeah, the fascist... And then into Germany, and finally it was uh, used by the Nazi army. So this Nazi salute even was an American invention, the Bellamy salute. So things like this, religious symbolism, religious uh, small things that we'd say over and over and over, hymns, patriotic songs, um, how we depict. You know, he's got all these pictures of our politicians that are depicted in like a holy light where like it's shown that there's some kind of halo. Even Obama standing in front of the O of Obama, a sign, it looks like he's got a halo. You know, this is shown over and over. The same things that are used to bring people into a cult are used to bring us into the cult of statism. And that is the belief that the state is good, it is necessary, and it is legitimate. Yeah, and he also um, he also uses what is this the Latin um, so government the word government he says supposedly comes from the the words what does it say gubernare mente and what he says that breaks down into is gubernare is to control govern or rule. And mens or mente is mind, so mind control. Now, if you look this up on the internet, uh, I think there's enough, um, I don't want to say confusion, but there there are other opinions on this so that he might also be cherry-picking, you know, using propaganda to get his point across, which everybody is. So I, I feel like out of all the things that he presents in the book and in the podcast, that's a, to me... It's a relatively weak one because other people are like, you know, this is an interpretation of a language that is no longer spoken. So it's kind of like you can twist things to to what you want them to be, especially in this case. It is interesting, but I, I don't know if I can like 
say, wow, like that, that's crazy since I've seen what other people have written about it. Yeah, gobinare, you know, is is to govern, rule, or control, but the mens or mente, um, which he says means mind, to control the mind, that's apparently debatable. I had a couple people step up. I shared this on Facebook, and they were like, well, that's not what that means in Latin. So uh, I do feel like he's, uh, you know, cherry picks a good word, you know, kind of maybe isn't critical enough of his own. He's pushing an agenda, and I feel like sometimes it's a little too hard. Sometimes it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes I'm like, eh, you know, I feel like by ignoring that that could be interpreted another way, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. You're starting to sound like the propagandist that you purport to oppose. Yeah, like I'll just go ahead and say this one because it's further down on the list of stuff, and we're like going long here. Um, There was this person's name that was in charge of some sort of program and it was his name was like Satoshi Nakamoto, and <laughs> like at the end's like well if you take the N from the last name and then the S A in Satoshi that's N S A it's like I don't know I mean maybe but that just starts to seem like you're going out on a limb to find like you know crossword puzzle things that prove your point. And didn't he say that loosely translated as central intelligence? Yeah. Again. This, yeah. I don't know. So I mean I'm not trying to like say, oh, this is gobbledygook, but sometimes I'm like, oh, you should have stopped while you were ahead. I feel like conspiracy theorizing is a really slippery slope, because if you just dismiss it all, then you make the insane conclusion that we are to trust the government, that all things that question the government, that the government is not admitting themselves are conspiracy theories. And Jesus Christ, just a little research brings that into question. So that is absurd. But then if you go too far with it, it's so tempting to keep going. And then you start like just ignoring things that question your own assumptions. And then you go into a whole, I mean, you're just, just as bad as them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, whew, it takes some discipline. And even with discipline, you know, you still find your, you have to constantly question yourself. Um, there's a quote that he has in the book that I really liked. This is by Bertrand Russell. Um, Fabian socialist and eugenicist, writing in The Impact of Science on Society. This was written in 1953. Diet injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable... All will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so. And, you know, as Teresa brought up in some of our latest podcasts, the suicide rate is incredible. The amount of depression, the amount of mental illness, the amount of people in so many ways showing they are so unhappy they don't want to live anymore. And yet, still in this population... You won't have to go very far for, to find somebody that says, well, it's the best we've got. This is the greatest nation on earth. It's absurd. It doesn't add up. It doesn't bear the weight of logic of just looking at things with a clear mind. And so I feel like this, this uh, prediction of Bertrand Russell in 1953 has definitely come to pass. Diet? We're fed shit. We're fed stuff that dumbs us down, that keeps us addicted. 
We're invested in food that gives us more than our body wants of sugar and chemicals and shit that really does not serve us. Injections, holy crap. Um, I don't want to get into vaccines so much because I feel like there's still a, a lot I need to learn, but I've been learning about the aluminum and the mercury that have been shown to be in many vaccines. And the way this new questionable vaccine that has not even been approved by our own crooked government is being pushed on us in such a propaganda manipulative way, I'm against it. I just don't trust it. And the injunctions, and that's the, the schooling. Even when I was in school, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it was bullshit. Yeah. I knew in elementary school, I knew even more in middle school, and by high school, you couldn't have told me any different. I knew what I was being told did not reflect the world around me. It was bullshit. And I would look around at my other people, the other people in school, the people trying so hard to get that coveted A. How come you don't see this? You're supposed to be the smartest kids. How come you don't see this? So that's why I like that quote. I think there's a lot there that we're seeing come to pass. And the government's just telling us we must be happy. This is the best it's ever been. Don't give this up because anything else is a precipice into hell. And yet what's happening now, the best it's ever been, the greatest technology, the most advanced, et cetera, et cetera, it's creating a culture where the suicide rate is off the charts. Depression is all over the place. Anxiety is common. It doesn't add up. Right. It's that religion of statism. And it took me a minute to figure out why he was, why Etienne was using a quote from somebody that it, he himself has put in the book as a eugenicist. Like, eugenics, that's supposed to be bad because it's like only like wanting the master Aryan race or something. But then I was like, oh, duh, Teresa, he's saying like that guy. And I mean, I might be wrong about this, but like that guy must be like kind of one of those people that was like the powers that shouldn't be, you know, people that wanted to have like one race of, of humans. And like a Fabian socialist is like somebody that I think, um, I looked this up. It's like somebody that, that creates fables, like how Daniel Quinn uh, had like the story of B or Ishmael, like a person that, um, writes stories that kind of show how society could be or is in a, in a, um, maybe a satirical way or something. And that was on a page in the book, that quote, uh, where it was showing like how all of these many, many companies that are considered, you know, consumer goods, whether it's, um, food, food products, beverages, uh, down to like soap and pharmaceuticals, they're all owned by like what six or I don't know, like a handful of major companies in, um, in each industry. And it kind of confused me because I was thinking about how, you know, like anarcho-capitalism is supposed to be like the truly free market. And we were, and Gumby and I were talking about this, uh, again this morning and I was like thinking, well, if all of these companies are so huge that they're able to influence the government, like what's going to be the difference if we got rid of the government? And Gumby, did you have anything you wanted to say about that? God damn, it's hot. <laughs> yeah, we were in the shade to start with. But uh, I think um, 
my question, again, trying to be the devil's advocate, you know, like one of the interviewers said, well, don't we already have a corporatocracy? So if you get rid of the government, what's to stop the corporations from just basically being what they've already started being, um, you know, any government by any other name? And uh, Etienne's response, I felt like was sort of sidestepping. I don't even remember it. It really didn't move me much. Um, but to be a, the devil's advocate, I wonder... I wonder if, like, some of these largest corporations or the most evil are funded by the government. That's one of the—I think that was part of his response is that they basically get um, just endless funds to do whatever they want. So the government cherry-picks its favorite corporations, makes a deal with them, and these are going to be the winners. Mm. Um, so I wonder if, like, this self-organizing universe he describes, if it's possible that— you could have some form of capitalism, which, again, I don't think is the end. Like, we need to move there as a final thing, but it could be the next step, something better that starts moving us in a better direction. Um, I wonder if they might be more like small mom-and-pop businesses. For instance, if a corporation starts poisoning the water, let's presume people don't like their fucking water poisoned. Maybe this corporation fails without the government stepping in and like, no, actually, we've got people over here that have nothing to do with this water, don't care what these people think. This is just one community, and they're getting hugely wealthy. So let's just make sure this corporation can't fail. So that's what I wonder is if it is a factor. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, you know, reading, I would probably have to read a lot more about anarcho-capitalism as well as um, just other criticisms and critiques of it to to fully understand the bigger picture but yeah i just it is confusing yeah and one of the uh things i thought was interesting how he uh divided the differentiated between the terms slave and enslaved you know it's become very vogue instead of to talk about slaves to say enslaved people but I like the way he says a slave is someone who doesn't fight back. An enslaved person is someone who's been put into slavery but resists in some way, even if it's just, uh, you know, stealing things from old Mass's house, you know, finding ways to sabotage the machinery of slavery. Because, <clears throat> in fact, you know, some of those people that were enslaved were slaves. They became people that actually were an extension of the master's house. They would be the first people to tell on you. They would be the first people that were like the right hand of the master. There were people who, no matter what happened, um, kept resisting. So I felt like that was a really important thing. Some of us are slaves and some of us are enslaved people, and we need to put our hope in the enslaved people. Um, and I know some people will bristle under the idea that, like, I'm comparing our plight with those of the chattel slaver, slaves of uh, the 1800s, 1700s. But it's not so different as you might think when you start studying um, wage slavery, the ways that were kept. It's just gotten to be more sophisticated. You know, chattel slavery didn't work anymore when the plantation and the agriculture started uh dwindling and the new industrial revolution started kicking in. It wasn't profitable to have a slave that you bought that you had to take care of that you were invested in like buying a new house. Much better to have disposable people. So if you're resisting, I see that as a really important distinction. Um, we are all enslaved people. Some people are slaves. 
try to talk to the enslaved people. The slaves, those are the people that'll fucking turn you in and aren't ready to even consider that there's anything wrong with their own slavery. Mm. <clears throat> Along with that, I uh, I heard him, I heard Etienne say this, I think in one of the interviews he did. Uh, he called himself a neo-abolitionist experimenting with large-scale cult deprogramming. And I liked that. And I also... Um, I'll just I'll just say this briefly. Look up what an abolitionist, like what that meant, because um, in my limited understanding offline of the internet, it seems like it wasn't just about freeing slaves. It was like a bigger um, philosophy. So look that up and and let me know if I totally got that wrong. Yeah, part of the book that I really I've heard a lot of people reference, and I finally uh, I feel like understood it more through his. Uh, small like um, page on the allegory of uh, Plato's cave. But Plato, Socrates's, you know, prize student, um, talked about, what would I say? He created an analogy. Mm -hmm. What if there were a bunch of prisoners in a cave and they were all chained to face the wall? And in the middle, there was a walkway where the jailers, um, the oppressors would walk and there was a fire in the middle. And so all these prisoners ever saw in their entire lives was the shadows dancing on the cave walls. Now, what if one of these prisoners escaped and got to see the outside world and is like, wow, there's so much more than those shadows. You thought you were looking at the world, but it was just shadows. And he came back and tried to talk to another prisoner. How would he be able to convince the other prisoner of what he saw. The other prisoner is completely convinced that he's looking at the world, but he's just looking at the shadows. Now, this has been a analogy that's been used for a long time. I mean, what, 2,500 years since Plato and Socrates of the way propaganda, it's basically an allegory of describing propaganda, creating a picture, the authorities, the oppressors, creating a picture that's illusions, being stuck in illusions, but not seeing reality. But how much more of that true that is, like when you picture these prisoners staring at this cave wall with the flickering lights, the shadows. My God, that's television. That's your computer. That's radio. That is more apt for sophisticated propaganda than it was when he said it. So I thought that was really interesting. And that's something that we've heard brought up many times of different people talking about um, you know, some of these propaganda, some of the, the things that are happening now is the allegory of Plato's cave. So if you run into that, that's what Plato's cave is. And it's a beautiful allegory. Yeah, and speaking of the tell-lie vision, as Etienne would say, um, Operation Mockingbird, that was something that uh, I think we might have briefly mentioned in our presidential podcasts, but basically it was revealed in, um, in some hearings. It was like in 1976 or something, the church committee hearings that the CIA had, um, basically they had journalists of, of all different kinds, whether it was newspaper, TV, radio, they had them in their back pockets. So journalists would write the stories for the CIA or just sign their name to a story that the CIA wrote for them um, in order to uh, construct reality the way that the government, the organized crime syndicate, uh, wanted it to look. Yeah, and one of the ways they construct this reality is if, uh, 
You know, there's so many news outlets, and this is one of the things that uh, Etienne brought up a lot, is he said, I can tell you that all the media you hear is put out by three groups. But until you see it, when I can show you a visual, you don't really get it. And so the visual is in this book, and it's really interesting to learn that all the media, all the different news channels, think about how many newspapers are out there. They're all bought up by basically three groups, which are the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberg Group. These three groups control everything that you're being taught, that you hear, the, uh, the opinion, the stance, the view that is funneled into you come from these three groups. And these three groups are really cozy together. Jeff Epstein was a member of all three groups. Mm-hmm. So, so was, was Bill Clinton. Well, I was going to get to that, but there was that banker that was both the banker for some kind of banker for Jeff Epstein and Trump, I believe. Oh, yeah. I that was a member of all three groups. And the one president we found that was also a member of all three groups was Bill Clinton. These three groups are extremely powerful behind the scenes. Um,. I don't feel like I know enough about them to talk much more about them, but I want to put them on everybody's radar for you to do your own research. Check them out. The Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, and the Council on Foreign Relations. These aren't just little mom-and-pop stores here. These are places with more power and more wealth than you might realize people have out there. These are people that can buy and sell politicians. Um, There's this quote we found from... The Deception Maxims, Fact and Folklore. This is from the CIA Deception Research Program paper of June 1981. So, literally, this is right out of the CIA handbook. Deception becomes more difficult as the number of channels of information available to the target increases. However, within limits, the greater the number of controlled channels, the greater the likelihood the deception will be believed. (laughs) <laughs> this was in 1981. Now we have 500 channels. You feel like you've got 500 different points of view. But when you start digging, you find three groups behind all of them. But if you put out 500 channels, as the CIA realized in 1981, it makes it more likely that one of them will be believed. You're going to believe one of them and feel like, ooh, you got the edgy independent one makes me wonder about even things like I love, like South Park. I love South Park. I feel like, how the hell do they get away with that crap? (laughs) Indeed, that's a good question. How are these three groups feeling? I mean, they're getting rid of shit left and right. You got to wonder about the stuff still standing. Mm -hmm. How does it, they must have looked at it and decided, well, this doesn't really pose a real threat. And it actually feeds into our narrative in a roundabout way. (laughs) They're making them laugh at these situations. Yeah. What if instead of getting pissed off and doing something, they're just laughing, you know, like. Ah, It's funny because it's true. (laughs) Uh, Don't mess with my South Park, though. That's like my favorite show. It is. Yeah. Kudos to South Park. There's a uh, quote that's also in Etienne's book by Woodrow Wilson, former president of the United States. He wrote this in The New Freedom. And this is a direct quote. Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States, in the field of commerce and manufacture, 
are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. This was during World War I. These powers behind the scenes were already in place back in Woodrow Wilson's time. <laughs> World War One. Those, what do they call them? The barons? The, you know... Yeah, the, uh... Oh, we watched that documentary on Henry Ford and Rockefeller. Robber barons. Robber barons, yeah. I think it really escalated with them. Because the government, like... Yeah, there was some shadowy shit going on with, like, the Freemasons and all that crap. But I think Rockefeller and Carnegie and all them, I think they really stepped up the game. Yeah, I definitely agree that that was, whether it was the beginning or a huge part in it, I would agree with you. And, uh, man, you know, you you say that around the, around the wrong crowd, you know, that'll definitely get you condemned as a conspiracy nut. Ooh, the power behind the power. What if the president isn't actually the leader of the free world? Ooh, but doesn't that make sense? I mean, if you got a fucking, like, two brain cells to rub together, are you going to put yourself out there where you're a target? No, you're going to have a fucking puppet. Right. And you're going to have puppets that look different from each other, so the goddamn fools will think, oh, we get to choose between these two puppets, and we're in control. But anybody paying attention, and I'm sure anybody listening to our podcast, this episode right now, has already figured out every politician is basically like every other politician. For everything they disagree on, there's ten things they agree on. And those ten things are the important things that shape our world. That little whether they support gay marriage or not, that's not ultimately important. Because who the fuck's getting married gay or not if the planet takes a nosedive? <clears throat> not a memory hole, but a rabbit hole that I started going down and I didn't really get to complete because we were not around internet. But uh, there's this guy that um, his name has been thrown about when it comes to anarcho-capitalism. And he was uh, he was actually like the guy that kind of um, consolidated all the theories about anarcho-capitalism. So he was like the father of it. And his name is Murray Rothbard, I believe. Oh yeah, Monica Perez on the Propaganda Report talks about him a lot, right? Yeah, and he's a crazy motherfucker. Like, uh, as he got older, I think he really, really lost his mind. Um, I haven't read any of his books, but some of the things that... Um, I've read him, like, say in the Wikipedia articles, I'm, my jaw dropped. Think, um, if you are a parent, you don't, like, as a parent, you do not need to be forced to be a parent. Therefore, if you want to let your child starve to death, that's your right as a person. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, some of this is, like, really crazy. Well, would you, what's your objection to that? It sounds cold as shit. But when you think about the alternative, is it the government's place to force? I don't know. That's a tricky thing he's bringing up. Well, like I, I read a quote. And I wish I would have written it down, but it was I believe it was from Noam Chomsky, who, by the way, is on our list of people to talk about briefly. because I know we're running long here, but uh, Noam Chomsky said something about anarcho-capitalism like, you know, it's so despicable and horrible that even if it were possible, I think that people living in that society would probably do something like kill themselves. 
Um, so I guess what he was saying Who was would kill themselves? The parents? The, or the people in the society would not want to be in that society because it's so awful. It's the like society of what? Anarcho-capitalism. Ah. Like it's so good on paper and like in theory, like in philosophy, but you let a bunch of kids starve to death and you see how you feel about it. It's well, I wonder if people. Theory. Yeah, I, I wonder what he's trying to say there, though, because I think most parents saying, don't need to be coerced to keep their kids from starving to death. I wonder if he's trying to point out in kind of a shocking way that, like, the government has no right to tell you what to do, that, like, even to this extreme, the government has no right to tell you what to do. Because I feel like if the government pulled back, I don't feel like a lot of parents would be letting their kids starve to death. He was saying that if you are a parent and you want to sell your child to another family that will adopt them, there should be a free market for babies. Which is basically what we already have, right? It's, but it's the, it's the sentiment behind it. It's, it's, I, I see where you're coming from as the devil's advocate for this, but it's just kind of like Noam Chomsky says, just kind of despicable. And well, I agree. Boring. The language is jarring, but I, I, it, again, I'm, you know, I'm trying to look underneath the language. Like, what does this actually mean? And I wonder if maybe he's trying to, like, shock us. Because, like, if a parent is the type of parent that's not attached enough to their kid that would want to give or sell their kid to somebody who wants it, shouldn't they? <laughs> I, guess I mean, that, wouldn't the worst thing for the kid to be to have to stay with the parent who doesn't want them? I guess that's kind of what's happening when, um, you know, the parent, like, gives their, ch- their child or children over to the government in mandatory, you know, public schools or private schools. Or orphanages. I mean, this is something, like, this long-standing in our culture. I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Boy. So Murray Rothbard, I believe it was him... He, in in the Wikipedia article, it said something about, like, he was involved in this um, group that was the precursor to the Free State Project. It was something like free for all or free for everyone or... It's a free for all. Yeah, something like that. It was something kind of, like, corny. And I clicked on that link, but I didn't download the article. And it said something about that free for freedom for everyone or whatever it's called... Uh, had as one of its um, like think tank sponsors was the Koch K O C H brothers, and I don't know that much about the Koch brothers, but I I just remember like hearing their name that name batted about as like oh yeah those are that's one of those like families that has a lot of money they're probably involved in the you know quote unquote deep state or whatever. So I'm just I was just bringing that up because we don't know. If even this free state project, we don't know who's behind that and what their motives are. That's one of the things that I feel like taints this a little bit that makes me look uh, askew at it is the Koch brothers being involved, realizing how wealthy of a Wall Street player Etienne de la Bautier squared is. It kind of sounds, I mean, like when they're talking about the government's robbing you. They're doing pretty goddamn good for being victims of being robbed. <laughs> like he, like if, like whatever the house he lived in and outside of Washington D.C., like the amount of tax that he had to pay on that house was more than I've made in several years. Yeah, I mean, show me Robin Hood <laughs> living out in the woods, you know, having to rob to like survive. No wonder to he... tell me about people robbing him. It's kind of I start feeling a little like what the fuck when all the rich people are like we're being robbed. Yeah, I've only got three yachts. They took my fourth yacht feel sorry for me 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with so much of what they're saying, but it also makes me wonder how much of this propaganda they're... I mean, like, Etienne de la Bautier Squared is studying propaganda. Obviously, when you look at this book, you can see the use of propaganda. You know, he even admits it. Learning at the speed of light. This is the way to deliver it most quickly to your brain Mm -hmm. by what we understand of how to deliver information. So, yeah, you kind of jumped ahead in something I wanted to talk about, but... Um, I share your skepticism. I'm trying to be the devil's advocate here because Mm -hmm. I feel like if we don't have these people here as far as uh, voluntarists, Etienne de la Bautier squared himself to represent themselves, it's kind of my duty to make a more interesting, well-rounded conversation to try to be their lawyer, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But underneath that, yeah, there's like when I hear a bunch of rich people talk about they're getting robbed, (laughs) I got a problem with that. Well, and it also brings up, like I was mentioning, I was mentioning that the quote uh, that Noam Chomsky that I didn't write down was saying about, you know, anarcho-capitalism. He was criticizing it. And didn't didn't Noam Chomsky end up on a list of people that in the back of this book, like uh, Etienne was saying? Well, yeah, he's got a list of untrusted frequencies and probable controlled opposition. Partial list. And, um... Some of these names on there, you know, he's saying controlled opposition. In other words, people that seem to be against the government, but maybe are just kind of like in the government's pocket that are sort of like trying to get people that uh, might oppose the government to kind of like, yeah, I like what they're saying, Mm -hmm. but sort of subtly steer us away from anything that would make us effective. (laughs) (laughs) He's not on the list, by the way, but I've been wondering about that dude for a while now. (laughs) But... Um, some of the names, and I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, just some of the names that jumped out at me are, uh, what was his name? Joe Rogan. Um, I don't know much about Joe Rogan. Ed Snowden. Edward Snowden. That surprised me. I always thought about this guy like it's a, a shame that he made such a sacrifice and now he's having to live in Russia and nobody gave a shit about what he came out with. We're all still using all the technology. We don't care if they're watching us. And like how did they make that documentary? And you mean to tell me the CIA couldn't like get him? Yeah. They've and, gotten so many other people. I mean, they've suicided or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, many other people. Yeah, the fact that he's still breathing says something. I mean, the yeah. CIA is taking out people. Um, QAnon. You know, all this stuff about, oh, QAnon, Q- what if the fucking CIA is QAnon? Just meant to kind of dis- discredit, to make people that um, are questioning the government look like crazy conspiracy theorists. <laughs> Jesse Ventura. You know, anytime we get a Hollywood guy, I'm like, they're a fucking actor. It's a wrestler. <laughs> they're paid. I mean, they've been lying for years and now you trust him as a politician. What? <laughs> He's a reality star. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> You're Arnold, fired. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Trump. Jesus. And Noam Chomsky, this one kind of surprised me. Noam Chomsky turned me on to a lot of ideas like manufactured consent, how the media leads us to um, kind of give our consent to things that we might otherwise find deplorable, like wars and certain certain wars in particular. You know, he was a big opponent with the Vietnam War especially. But, you know, before he was even on this list, he was coming out against Trump and trying to get us to vote Biden. I <laughs> on saw his, things on his, like, like Facebook page or something. Yeah. And I was already kind of like, what? You know, like, how does this jive with some of the other stuff I've read you that you wrote? And I saw like extreme liberals like sharing Noam Chomsky quotes. And I'm like, 
Yeah, I was already kind of troubled by that. So, you know, yeah, seeing him pop up on this list, I don't know. It's got me thinking. And that's what I like. I like things that get me thinking. And something that was notably absent from all the interviews that I can remember, as well as the book, which, of course, the book is having to be printed, but no mention of anything about the Black Lives Matter matters protests or the trans movement. Yeah, this seems really strange to me. Again, I was trying to be the devil's advocate. Why? You know, Black Lives Matter has played such an important part. He's bringing up QAnon. He's bringing up Joe Rogan, but not a whisper about Black Lives Matter or the trans movement that's been such a, you know, trans movement that's really fueling the cancel culture. This is kind of a big deal in what's happening now. Not a whisper of it. Now, if I'm going to be the devil's advocate and try to figure out why, if he's, you know, above board, why he might bring, like, leave these out, I might say that he's figuring he can bring more people in by not touching that than he would turn off by saying, like, oh, this is also controlled opposition. That's my one stab at being the devil's advocate for that. Maybe he just wants to try to bring more people into a common cause, which I'm all about. I think that's a really good strategy, and he's afraid if I start quibbling over, like, the way the trans movement has been manipulated by um, the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies or Black Lives Matter is being manipulated by left-wing think tanks to keep us divided, um, maybe he's feeling like he'll lose more people than he'll gain by dealing with that. So let's just shuffle that off to the side for now, find a common cause, and get strong behind it. So... That could possibly be a reason why he doesn't talk about those. It's a great strategy. It would be a great strategy. And I'm hoping that most of what this guy, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to play both sides here. We're trying to uh, give our opinions on what we don't quite get and doesn't sit right and also what we support. So I still am hoping that there's something to this movement because it's got so much promise, more promise than I think anything else I hear going on right now, other than just waiting for society to collapse while you eat Cheetos and play video games. Um, now, at the back, towards the back of the book, he shares a lot of his memes, and for the most part, I thought the memes were pretty pedestrian. I mean, if you're part of any anarchist Facebook pages or anything, they're not really that much better than what you're already running into, but some of them, you know, like what you usually run into. Some of them are pretty funny and pretty good. Um, and I asked Teresa to pick out like her favorite that she wanted to share. And of course we can't share the picture. So a favorite that would translate to just talking about it. So Teresa, you want to share your favorite? Sure. I thought this one was really good because, um, if I can find it, it, it kind of just brings everything home for me. So this is on a page of memes called Solutions. I'm not sure if all these pages say that. This says, a mother's pledge to every other mother. And it shows, uh, I, I'm guessing, something like the Virgin Mary holding um, Jesus in her arms. She said, I will not raise my precious child to kill your precious child. And if it is within my power, I will not hand over my beloved child to others to kill your beloved child or to learn how to kill the one you cherish. So... I, yeah, I'm in full agreement. Like, who decides as a mom, you know, going back to selling your babies or letting them starve, like, you're selling your child into the military, whether it's, you know, through Boy Scouts or JROTC or, you know, signing up when you're 18 to go into the Marines or whatever. You're handing your baby over to go kill other people's babies. What is wrong with you? 
Is that the only choice that you can see? And that speaks volumes to our culture. Yeah, I thought that was really beautiful. And since Teresa picked such a uh, kind of poetic, beautiful one, I decided to look for more of a funny one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in our part one, the biggest scam in history on my harmonica, I played the Star Wars theme, which is, uh, as you might have picked up on, some of the harmonica tunes that I play, I'm not that familiar with. So I play them really rusty and clumsy. Star Wars theme from working with kids, they would always say, play the Star Wars music. So I play that all the time. That just came out of me like breath. <laughs> so I found the Star Wars meme that was in the back I thought was pretty cute. And it's got Darth Vader standing in front of a bunch of stormtroopers. And it says, I don't agree with President Vader's policies, but I still think that we should support our stormtroopers. <laughs> oh, there was another, there was one more meme. I thought this was pretty clever. It shows an officer at the window of a car that he's pulled over. And the officer says, do you know why I'm stopping you? I wanted to cut this out and put it in the van. And the person driving says, well, officer, a crime requires an injured party. Seeing as there isn't one, I can assume you're attempting to manufacture my consent to a contract with the state's corporate policy in order to generate revenue as part of a racketeering scam. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you know, follow the logic of that. There's, there is no victim. There's really been no crime. It's just a matter of... Um, you know, us saying, oh, you may have hurt someone, so therefore give us money to support uh, the budget for the police department. And Etienne de la Bautier Square, as he's talking about his book, says he's never been corrected in two years. Like, mm. he's uh, had professional editors, professional fact checkers. He's got a lot of information. And for the most part, you know, I'm pretty impressed with his information and how well it's backed up. But to say he's never been seriously challenged in two years, and then I look in the back of the book, and he's got this section that's kind of like just dealing with all the things of sort of like more personally, how to maybe change your life, how to get a little closer to a healthy lifestyle. And he's got a little part here that says, meat. Humans are biologically herbivores and can reduce their incidence of obesity, cholesterol, and other health issues by ditching meat. Okay, just the first part. Humans are biologically herbivores? Yeah, let me finish. <laughs> the blood in meat contains albumin, hemoglobin, and gamma globulin, and all of these chemicals activate opioid receptors. When meat eaters were treated with a drug used to block opiate receptors, ham consumption fell by 10%, salami by 25%, and tuna by 50%. Now... I've heard a lot of fucking good evidence that I still believe that we are omnivores. The human dentition, our eyes in the front of our heads for binocular vision, which is typical of predators, it all points to a species that is meant to eat both plants and animals. We don't have the physiology of a pure predator like a cat, but damn sure we don't have the physiology of a pure herbivore like a deer or a cow. So nobody's challenged that in two years? Yeah. Like, uh, what was the, I smelt a rat? <laughs> I smell a rat. Who said that? Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry. I smell a rat, too. I smell a yoga teacher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that to me... Um, so I used to be a vegetarian. Um, I studied to be a yoga teacher. They wanted to have us be raw food vegans. And 
You know, if you are very still during the day in meditation for hours and you don't do much else, I'm sure that you can be a vegan. But if you are going to move about and need energy, um, I can tell you from seven years of being a vegetarian, um, it's very difficult. You have to consume, consume, consume massive amounts of carbs, and that's not really healthy either. And I'm not promoting meat eating. I'm just saying that um, I challenge that. Biologically herbivores? I've never heard of that. That sounds to me like something that was forced by a uh, yoga teacher. I've heard of that, but I thought it was bullshit when I heard it before, and I think it's bullshit now. I've actually heard this challenge by uh, Native peoples who say, you know, on a healthy planet where things are in balance, um, you have freedom. You have the, the autonomy of being a free human being, a free human animal by eating both plants and meat. The only way to have a completely plant-based diet is to be completely beholden to industrial society. That kind of diet does not keep you alive year-round. It doesn't give you freedom. It doesn't give you autonomy. So that right there jumped out. I remember Teresa bought the book, and uh, that was the first thing. She was so excited. Like we said in the last uh, episode of this, she doesn't usually buy books. So excited to buy this book. And man, as soon as you ran across that, I like you just you never quite came back around to being a big fan of the book. Yeah, that was something that probably could have been left out. I tried to hold opinion. I was like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't even want to hear your opinion about it. Let me get there on my own and put it in context. And I got there on my own. I saw the context. And yeah, I just, it seems like, I mean, it, it, it's a damn shame if everything else in this book holds weight that he would throw that in there as a empirical fact because it kind of fucking pollutes everything else. Yeah. And by the way, I professionally edited... On page 25, I believe the Capitol building is C-A-P-I-T-O-L. I could be wrong about that, but uh, it might be kind of one of those, I don't want to say Freudian slips, but a uh, uh, anarcho-capitalist slip because it's spelled C-A-P-I-T-A-L, like money, like capital. Yeah, and we're winding up this episode, like <laughs> Teresa's been saying, it's a long episode, but uh, we got to the back of the book, and it's a lot of computer stuff that uh, as... Uh, I'd say both of us, whether Teresa calls herself an anarcho-primitivist or not, we're kind of leaning that way. So we found it pretty boring. We're trying to reduce our use of technology. Um, Etienne de la Bautier Square is uh, a technologist, so he's all about the technology. So he, he put quite a few pages in there about Bitcoin and um, just... A lot of technology that kind of made me go cross-eyed. It's like, oh, read it because I want to, you know, be prepared for this podcast. But it was boring as shit. Yeah, and I'm I don't want to hold this against the guy because I know in the past I've worked for such wonderful companies to the environment and and humanity as IBM and um, Bayer Crop Science or Bayer, as it's pronounced. But uh, this guy, like in a 2012 article, he mentioned that, you know, as a technologist in, who specializes in telepresence, which is basically like teleconferencing, video conferencing. We're doing a lot of that now mm-hmm. um, with this pandemic. So it works out, I guess, for him. But he, um, he helps businesses like learn at the speed of light. And in one of the questions in this, in this article from 2012, he said that... He works on telepresence solutions, uh, accelerating 
Oh, God, I can't read my writing. Nobody can. Yeah. Accelerating, uh, let's just say, companies <laughs> outsourcing their research and development software and hardware to lower-cost labor centers. So I'm just saying, you know, stuff that you say is kind of a reflection. So, yeah, uh, maybe he totally changed, like that yoga teacher changed him. Teresa is a very progressive person. She uh, is outgrowing uh, writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, just to kind of give you a little bit more about Etienne de la Bautier Squared, he is a uh, member, I think founder of the Art of Liberty Foundation. Is that right? Incorporated in 2018, according to the Internet. All right. And what he writes about it a little bit in his book the Art of Liberty Foundation is a startup public policy organization focused on spreading voluntarist libertarian ideas through effective media tailored to visual learners, busy people, and short attention spans, exposing intergenerational organized crimes control of the government and media, and their use of government and statism as techniques to rob and control the population. The foundation produces, curates, and distributes books, blogs, podcasts, memes, videos, infographics, and monographs that explain the basics of voluntarist libertarian ideas and expose the illogic, illegitimacy, and immorality of government, in addition to its criminality and corruption. The foundation is focused on developing viral and uncensorable methods of spreading voluntarist, libertarian news and content and evidence of government and media criminality through hand-to-hand distribution of innovative physical objects, including low-cost picture books, data DVDs, and USB flash drives. The foundation is currently raising a $50,000 seed round to accelerate these efforts. So, uh, yeah, the Art of Liberty Foundation... Um, who, um, we're not being paid. We in fact paid for this book and we are not being paid by anyone to like do this. Unlike it sounds like some of the podcasts that he was on. Yeah. And that was aimed at some of you that haven't made a donation. We are not (laughs) being paid. Um, and you know, Etienne de la Bautier squared is on everybody's podcast. I didn't even search hard. I just kind of like typed in podcast Etienne de la Bautier Square and immediately got like 10 different podcasts that he did an interview on. Um, I don't know how many more I would have gotten if I would have started like picking through the stuff, but you know, we barely had time to listen to what I downloaded. It uh, overwhelmed my iPad, the memory. Um, Yeah, so it's really impressive, you know, that he's getting his message. He's like so putting so much effort into getting his message out there, but That leads me to the last topic I want to cover in this episode, and that's the question, is the book itself propaganda? (laughs) I think I've already answered that. Yes, it is propaganda. But propaganda doesn't necessarily mean it's for a bad end. So that leads me to the next question. What's the hidden motive? Is there a hidden motive? Is it up front? Is it what it purports to be? Um... Who's the target audience? You know, one of the things that Teresa and I both kind of buckled under, kind of raised our hackles as we're reading this, is we felt somewhat manipulated because we recognize this is propaganda. 
But maybe we're not the target audience. You know, he says himself that this book is meant to wake people up, people that maybe are still on the level of like believing what they see on TV. Um, Anybody that questions the government is probably a conspiracy theorist. Maybe that's the target audience and people that are already kind of awake to Edward Bernays, uh, propaganda. You know, they look at this and right away they're like, well, this is propaganda. This is this is manipulative. This is not quite straightforward. This is meant to do things in a certain order to elicit a certain response from me. And, uh, you know, you, when you've kind of had practice with that, immediately when you run into the feeling that you're being manipulated, you kind of feel a little defensive. Like, yeah, I don't know where you're trying so hard to lead me, but the fact that you're trying so hard to lead me, I'm going to look more carefully. And the larger question that's in that is, who can we trust? Teresa, yes. who can we trust? Can we trust this? I think I can only trust um, my experience and like what I like. I guess I don't want to say what I feel because I know that that's you know getting taken down left and right by you know people that are saying oh that's not enough. But yeah, there's just something about like when you read something and and you can you know, back it up with several sources. Um, that's a good thing. And I know he's got his flash drive that has the backup on it. Um, so that it's, you know, if it's taken down from the internet that you still have what the original was, so you can back it up and not just be, you know, called a crazy conspiracy theorist. But yeah, I mean, I guess like everything I'm trying to take the good and, and I'm not quite leaving the rest. I think I'm tearing him a new asshole on this episode, but, uh, I'm kind of cranky and bitchy today, so. <laughs> well, let me first, like, complete my shit sandwich, so let me get a little bit more into the shit before I give you some bread. Um, one of the things that troubles me is this is a guy that's talking about controlled opposition. This is a guy that knows as much as anybody about what the CIA is capable of. He talks about journalists that got killed, that came out against the government and met with suspicious ends. Um, things like that. He's very aware of how well the CIA, out of their own playbook, if you have a opposition to the government, can infiltrate it, can influence it, can stop it, can stop the people involved. So how is this guy getting this free state project going? Yeah. Like, what? There's something unseen here, and I don't know what it is. Whether I'm pretty convinced Etienne de la Bautier squared is just a figurehead. Mm -hmm. He's not what's behind this. To understand the government as well as he does in the CIA playbook, it would make no sense for the guy that's actually the brains behind the operation to be in front of it. All you are is a target. It makes no sense that he would be that guy. So let's say that he's just the figurehead. They found an eloquent speaker that can get the message out there, but is not the end-all, be-all of this movement. But still, either there are safeguards in place that I can't understand to prevent infiltration and uh, sabotage of this movement, which how the hell do you prevent that when you're talking about a whole state's worth of people? I, I can't wrap my mind around how that would be prevented. Or 
This is the controlled opposition he's telling you about. Mm. That is something we've seen in the CIA to say, look out for these people, to describe these people. But because you're the first one to come out and say, look out for these people, everybody's so busy looking at where you're pointing, they don't even notice that you just described yourself. It's like whoever smelt it dealt it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all I want to put out there. I really don't want to throw this guy under the bus because my, my final, like, kind of bottom line is I do recommend this book. There's a lot here that I think helps wake you up to the way things work that I do believe. I do believe even if this guy is straight up CIA himself, um, 90% of this book is probably exactly what he says it is. And he's counting on the people that get behind this book to already know basically this shit, but it will help you kind of talk more intelligently. Um, and in the chance that this is legit, that this Free State Project is what it says it is, I want to get behind that. If there's a chance of something working, we're already so fucking divided that we can't get together on anything. No movement, no environmental, no green flame, deep green resistance, Black Lives Matter, all this stuff. It's just got us so splintered that if there is a chance that we can actually get together and like free one state that could start the domino effect, I feel like we owe it to support that. But keep asking questions. Keep your brain turned on. Keep watching and take those questions to the source. Fucking send Etienne de la Bautier Square an email. Ask him these questions. And if he ignores you, wonder why he's ignoring you. Maybe the guy's so busy. We know he's busy. We know he's crazy busy. But I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at. I want to support this. I want to watch it. And I want to keep my brain turned on and not just, like, turn this into uh, me following a guru. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, and that Free State Project, it seemed, I think it. he said or somewhere it said it was going on since 2003. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. I mean, I know that there's... And for people committing to move there, that's a lot of people pouring yeah. in, like you said. Yeah, so I, I'm really interested to hear if anyone else has heard of the Free State Project. And if you know people in New Hampshire, contact them. See what they say about this. You know, supposedly this is this should be a big presence in New Hampshire by now. If there's anybody that you know that lives in New Hampshire, I would imagine they'd be have some familiarity with this, if it's if it's anything. Right? I yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Um I had uh, other criticisms, but I think we've done this to death. So I'm going to read a listener right in. Um I knew we just did one. Tim from Maine, and I am going to kill this Maine accent because... Kill it! In a bad way, just in a bad way. Okay. Oh, I'm so nervous. Okay. This is going to be bad, okay? This is going to be bad. All right, here we go. Wow. She's warned us before on podcasts it's going to be bad, and she delivers. Let's put all the spiritually righteous anarchist vegans on the ship to Mars as well. I said Mars. See how I did it? Mars. That's Maine, right? The regular just want to eat plants vegans are fine. They can stay. <laughs> that was as good as I could do. I'm sorry, Tim. Sorry. Um, that was Canadian. So that was in response to a fire truck. You that was like an old episode. Jewish man from Maine. Let's put all the spirits here. Oi! Yeah. You want to be on a ship to Mars? You might be Jewish. I don't know. 
That's true. We don't know. So it's okay. Um, I did it. I tried. I even wrote it phonetically. So, um, yeah, Tim. That was from an episode, uh, I think it was the first Fire Truck You episode. And I read that one because he mentions vegans and the spiritually righteous anarchist kind that we should just uh, ship off to Mars, put them on there first. And for the record, we don't know that Etienne is spiritually righteous. (laughs) We just know he's a vegan. He's just promoting veganism in his book. Yeah. So take that as you will. Um, So, yes, thank you, Tim, for writing in, and my apologies once again. Uh, And his girlfriend might be hot as balls. We don't know what he's getting at home. You know, maybe anybody would be like, all right, herbivore, sure, yes, (laughs) yes, herbivore. Whatever you want. I will eat carrots for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Just keep doing that. All right. So there you go. Uh, If you want to write to us and have your comment read in a terrible accent, you can do so on our website, escapingsociety.weebly, with a B. As in, oh shit, <laughs> dot com. And uh, let's see, on our website, we also have a link to donate money if you want to do that. Um, we've got links to our YouTube videos. We also have a Facebook page at Escaping Society. And Gumby, um, you want people to rate us on things and share our podcast? Yes, please. Yeah. So rate us. Rate us. Do that. Rate us a rating, especially if you're on a- Apple. Apparently, it matters more on Apple. So, you know, give us five stars. Um, if you think we deserve it. If you think we deserve it. And if you don't? If you don't, well... Uh, Screw you. Yeah, um, I wasn't going to say anything mean. <laughs> I didn't know how to finish that sentence. But, yeah, write us a little review, a couple sentences, you know. I get a kick out of the reviews that have been written. They're all kind of like have a caveat, caveat, like, oh, you know, I don't agree with everything they say, but I really like, you know. <laughs> but I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't listen to this out loud because of the use of the N-word occasionally. Um, <laughs> when noodles? I, what have you yes, got against noodles? When I'm driving through the, the Taco Bell line or something. Um, yeah, so... Please uh, give us a line. Let us know if you've heard about this book, about this guy, if you've listened to a podcast about the book, if you've um, heard of the Free State Project, or we heard we talked about in the first episode of this, the, the Thick Red Line Project. I can't find jack shit about that except on the website, thickredline.org or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd love to know if anybody out there is listening, if you've heard of this stuff and what you think. And get the book yourself. Like, follow the uh, follow your own rabbit down the rabbit hole. I mean, we're just a couple of hobos talking. What the hell do we know? We might be completely off base. So all we're doing is sharing our opinions and our views. And uh, we're hoping, mainly we're hoping to inspire you to check out the book yourself. Yeah, I think there's a free edition of it on his website. So check that out first. And uh, we pretty much, Jesus Christ, we like covered it very much in depth. And his interviews cover it in depth as well. So if you're trying to be on the cheap, you can go that route too. But yeah, um, that's it for me. You got anything else you want to say? That's it. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.